Well, hopefully you guys are ready for a little bit of a history lesson tied in with a Bible lesson. This week I was sorting parts. Seems like I've been doing that for 20-some years. And I mentioned to the person that was over there at the time, I said, you know, if I went to a place called hell, I bet it would be a hold cage in a manufacturing area where I sorted parts for all of eternity. And I started laughing, and the person said, but you're a good person, right? So I began to think a little bit about that because I work with people, a lot of people who believe that. Well, good people go to heaven, but I work with some who believe uh, other things. They believe that you have to be part of a certain group. Or, and so I began to think about that really in general. And so that led to the title here, The Church. Is today's church the same as the first century church? And I think what I'm going to talk about here, although it is extremely uh, easy to find within our scriptures, and although it is also very easy even to find within our recorded pages of history, and although it's logical, uh, and although it is very easy to see as we compare the Bible to other religious groups today, I think oftentimes what I'm going to talk about today is not often easily heard. Again, it's not that it's complicated to understand, but uh, it's not oftentimes easily or well-received. The religious groups today claiming to be of Christ, on average, look nothing like what we find within our New Testament scriptures. And the reason really, if you want to boil it down to a nutshell, is, is apostasy. And so we're going to go back and cover a little bit about that. And so I have to give a little bit of a history lesson as I, as I do this, but then we'll actually get into the Bible here. Let me start off by giving you a definition of apostasy. Now, usually when we find that word in the Greek, it's actually tied to the word heresy. But if you looked up the English definition, what you would find is, is the definition of religious apostasy is abandonment of a religious belief. And for anybody who maybe is not a, a well-versed Christian or doesn't know, the, the biblical basis for our belief is the New Testament Scripture. So an apostasy would be a moving away from simply what the New Testament teaches. Let me give you a quick historical lesson here on the apostasy. Uh, and I've gone back and done quite a bit of the research, and I've touched on it before, but if we go back and begin to look, even within our New Testament scriptures, we begin to find, and we are warned about, an apostasy or a falling away. It began slowly in the first century, uh, began to increase after the death of the very last apostle, and the apostasy continued to grow as people were divided over different doctrines uh, or teachings by, by groups like the Judaizers and the Gnostics and a number of other groups that came in and began to teach other things. And then what we find out is within the church structure, as you look in the history books, you will find there were divisions specifically over leadership who had power, specifically pertaining to elders and elder authority, where they moved away from, as our Bible shows, elders over a local congregation to elders presiding as super elders or bishops, what we then find archbishops and so forth, what we find in the Catholic hierarchy today, where there was a power struggle going on. All of that led to a non-biblical hierarchy system for what they called clergy. They would call us the laymen and call themselves clergy, set apart, uh, and they, they were looked at as holy men, right? We find all of that taking place within the first couple centuries. Now, if you go back and you look at this historian, most of you have never heard of him. His name's Ariel Durant. Uh, I can't tell you about all of his history and how accurate it is, but he makes this claim that according to his study in 187 A.D., that is not very long after the death of the last apostle John, he says there were over 20 different 
branches of Christianity. Well, when he says branches, what's he mean? He's talking about groups that are divided and or we would call them today denominational groups. So already, really within a hundred years after the last apostle has died, we've already got, as he says, uh, 20 different branches of Christianity. And then he says by 384 A.D., there were over 80, he says, varieties of Christianity. Again, what do we have? We have division where they have splintered off and created denominational groups. So already by the 4th century, over 80 different versions of Christianity. So we know as we go back and look for the first, really the first 300 years after uh, the death of Christ, we know that the religion per se of Christianity was banned by the Roman Empire. Uh, all allegiance was to be given to, to Rome itself, and so Christians were horribly persecuted. And if you don't believe that, just simply go back and open up the book of Revelation, and you will see just how bad it was for the early Christians. This all changed when Constantine uh, gave religious toleration with the Edict of Milan in A.D. Uh, 313. That lifted the ban on Christianity so people could worship how they wanted. However, then later, just 10 years later, in A.D. 325, Constantine then calls the Council of Nicaea. So here you've got an emperor basically making religious decisions. And this was an attempt to try to unify Christianity. And you may say, well, Constantine must have been a very religious person. <laughs> no, that's, that's not at all what's going on here. Constantine realized that he could use Christianity as a religion to try to unite the Roman Empire, which at this time was starting to flounder and really was becoming fragmented and divided. And so his thought was, I can rally the people, all of them claiming to be pretty much for the most part uh, adherents to some version of Christianity, and he could use this to really um, support Rome. That was his intent behind it. Now, while giving them uh, the right to, to worship how they wanted it and while trying to promote the idea of Christianity might have seemed like a very positive development for the faith, the results actually were anything but positive. Because what we find out as we go back and look at Constantine was is that Constantine never really fully embraced Christianity, and I'm talking about New Testament Christianity, Instead, what he did was he continued to uh, practice his pagan beliefs combined with some of the Bible and mixed with really some uh, Jewish beliefs. And so what we actually had and what was promoted by him and then his successors was a mixture of true Christianity mixed with some Judaism mixed with paganism. Now you take that and what we learn is, is eventually this would become the denomination that we now know as the uh, Catholic religion, or they would call it the universal religion, and that's because over those first 300 years and continuing up into the 6th century, they were the ones that had power, they enforced their religious beliefs, and finally, instead of Constantine calling religious meetings, you have the first pope in the 6th century, and he is now in charge of everything. You do what he says, or as we find in the history books, you die. And so what you had was Catholicism spreading across the planet, but not because it was, it was being done of evangelism, but because it was being done by the sword. Okay? Now, eventually there would be a protesting. I'm giving you a quick synopsis. Eventually there was a protesting against the Catholic Church. We know it was called the Protestant movement. It wasn't done so much for doctrinal, for doctrinal issues and the purpose of restoration, but it was really done as they protested against the power of the Catholic Church. And from this Protestant movement, we had a number of religious groups that, just like in the first and second century, you had all these varieties of Christianity. We then had 
more varieties come out as they protested against the Catholic Church. Today, one of the sources I looked up said that there are about 45,000 different denominational groups worldwide. And I think that's, most people, they take that for granted, right? Most people don't ask, why is it that we have 45,000 different religious groups claiming to be Christians, but yet we only have one Bible? Let that sink in for a minute. Most people don't ask the question. Most people don't believe there's really any difference from the Baptist church to the Methodist church to the Catholic church to the Pentecostal church to the Church of Christ to the Christian church. They know there's differences among there, but they don't really think there's much of a difference between them as to whether or not God is pleased by which one you go to. I would say that kind of sums up really the, uh, the church today or the religious environment we have. And so I submit to you this basic proposition that the majority of today's religious groups claiming to be Christians they do not meet the standard of God, and they disagree with one another. And guys, logically, they can't all be right. We could all be wrong, but we can't all be right. And then the next question is, is does God even care? Well, for many in today's religious world, they either simply don't worry about that question or they don't know how to, how to answer it. And so the only way for us to be safe is to go back and to look at every single thing we believe, every single thing we do, and really, we need to have this same attitude that we find from the Bereans. All right, so now we're going to get into a bombshell of Scripture. You guys ready? I hope you have an outline. If you don't, because everything I'm going to give you, I'm not going to give you my opinion. I just want you to understand what the Bible teaches. Because here's the question. Is the church today the same as the church we find in our New Testament? We have to be like the Bereans, Acts 17, 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Every single individual today and every single religious church, congregation, whatever you want to call it, they need to be asking themselves, are the things that we're doing in alignment with the scriptures? And so when we begin to ask this question regarding the church today, what I found is that the Bible only describes one church. That one church is not found in these divisions or denominational groups. I'm not going to really use the word denominational groups. I'm going to call, I'm just going to use the word divisions. That's what we find starting in the second and third century. Actually, we had it going on even in the first century. So I'm going to just call these divisions. But we're not finding the church in all these divisional bodies and or the community churches. And one of the things I noticed is, is as I was looking all of this up and studying, you don't find denominationalism or divisions continuing to grow rapidly with new names, and you guys know why? The majority of these groups are now just calling themselves community churches, right? And that's because a lot of the world, in my personal opinion, a lot of the world realizes they have been duped. They realize they have been tricked, and they all fell into these groups that were started by men, and I think a lot of people have figured it out. And so to go to a community church or a interdenominational church or a non-denominational church gets them away from the churches started by men. That's why they are growing so rapidly. How do we know that this division is wrong? Let's go on over to uh, John chapter 17. Because as we look through the scriptures, we find that the Bible mandates unity amongst its believers. Jesus clearly prayed for this. Notice John 17 starting in verse 20. Neither pray I for, thee alone, for these alone, notice this, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, 
art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Unity between individual believers would result in unity within the congregation, right? And if that were the case, and we know people that attend other churches, if we again individually were in unity with all these people, you guys realize what we would have in this world? We would just have one church. We'd have a lot of different buildings, but they'd all teach the same thing, and that's logical because we would all be in unity. You'd have uh, Christ's church or the Church of Christ on 12th Street. You'd have you know, Christ's church or, church or the Church of God over on, on 8th Street. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Or you would have the Church of the Firstborn over on 10th Street. And we're going to talk about the different names that we would wear. But here's the thing. Within all of those churches, we would all teach the same thing and believe the same thing. That's what Jesus prayed for. And if we could get this figured out in this religious world we live in today and understand Jesus wanted unity and not division, then this might help clear up the problem. And guys, division yields more division. And the problem is, is because it is void of a foundation. How many of you guys have ever heard of a congregation that split? It's because it was void of a foundational for whatever issue they were struggling over. Let's go on over to Matthew 12, 25. And guys, I know that for some, when, they, when I hear this, it is, so, it is so logical and easy to see in our Bibles. But guys, it is not what we see around us. And so there's going to be some pushback. And, and I understand that because I went to a community church for 10 years. It was really just a Baptist church, but it was called a community church. But I went to a number of we went from church to church to church and checked. We were trying to find it. Listen to what we learn in Matthew 12, 25. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and He said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Again, go back to congregations that have split. Congregations divided against themselves are not going to stand. They're going to split. Why do you have multiple denominations? Well, a guy did, he disagreed with somebody else, and because they couldn't rectify it, they just started a new group. And that's why it exploded. Lack of unity is why denominational groups or de uh, these divisive groups, and also, and I'm going to talk about this next week and I'll tell you why, it's also the reason that within the churches of Christ or the body of Christ, you have further divisions. Don't think for a second, hey, Sean's up here hammering on denominational groups or community churches. I'm not. There are the same problems found within the churches of Christ. And if you don't believe that, next week, by request, I'm going to touch on that. Okay. Clearly, this idea of division was condemned. Okay. Now, as we begin to talk about the churches that we have today, what we need to understand is Jesus actually taught about how many churches there would be. Let's go on over to Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Uh, and while I'm here, I always correct this because it's not rendered very good in the English. Uh, and so we have to understand this for basis of authority. Matthew 16, 18 uh, and 19. Jesus says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, that word is Hades, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, he's talking to the, well actually here in Matthew 16 he's talking directly to Peter, but in Matthew 18 he talks and says the same thing to the rest of the apostles. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, the church and the kingdom are the same thing. He says, I'll give thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the Catholics would say the 
the apostles had the right to make up their own criteria and rules. That is not what that says in the English uh, or in the Greek. What it says in the Greek is, is whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. Remember, they're speaking by inspiration. And whatever thou loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. The apostles are receiving the inspired word of God and they are teaching and preaching what has been bound and what has been loosed. Okay? And they have the keys to the kingdom. The kingdom is the church. And the keys that they had, guys, it's very simple. How do you get into the church? You obey the gospel. Who was preaching the gospel by inspiration? The apostles. And Jesus lays this out very clearly for them. Okay? Let's go on over to Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13. It says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, it's talking about Jesus here, and hath, notice this very closely, and hath translated us, moved us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Guys, I want you to notice very clearly that is translated. The word there is past tense. They are already in the kingdom. How many of you guys know somebody waiting for the kingdom to be established? Guys, I'm in the kingdom. In Revelation, this isn't in your notes. In Revelation 1.9, John says, I am a fellow partaker and I'm in the kingdom. When you are added to the church, you are added to the spiritual kingdom. Why? We are under the authority of God. He is the ruler. The word that He rules by is in our New Testament and we are all part of that spiritual kingdom. And so when we are added to the church, we're part of the kingdom. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and give you the keys to the kingdom. Guys, there is no future kingdom coming. When Jesus, I wish I could talk about premillennialism, but when Jesus comes back, He's coming to gather the kingdom. You've got people waiting on Jesus to come back and set up a kingdom. This is just something else being taught by another religious body out there that is not in alignment with the Scriptures. Okay, Let's go to Colossians 1.18. I'm going to mention this verse a couple of times, but it's because it's important. Let's talk, we're, we're talking about the body, the church, the kingdom. It says, "...and He is the head of the body." The church. So far we've already shown that the church is the kingdom. Here we see the body is the church. Are you guys learning? The body is the church. It is the kingdom. And He is the head of the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The head over the church is Christ. He has the preeminence. We have His inspired word and the inspired words from those that He appointed. And he told them, when you go out and speak, you're going to be speaking that which has already been bound and that which has already been loosed. That's what is to govern the church. Now, very simply, we have the church, we have the kingdom, we have the body, and there is only one head. Okay. Now, when you begin to tell people that today, there is some pushback and people say, no, now wait a minute. Um, what we have, Christ is the vine and you've got many branches coming off. And we're all part of the same thing, but, you know, we're just a different branch. Guys, let's go on over to John 15. I see this all the time. I see it all the time. We've covered it once or twice. I'm going to read the passage they use to promote division, multiple religious bodies, and error. I'm, this is the passage they go to. What I want you guys to do is to follow along with me as we read it and ask yourself, does this anywhere suggest that we can have multiple churches teaching multiple things? And is it even talking about churches? Follow along. John 15, 1 through 7. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch... You guys don't know what a branch is yet, do you? He's going to show us. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. 
What are these branches? Listen closely. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye, you can do nothing. If a man, are you guys learning what the branch is here? If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what, it, what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. This whole passage is about individuals remaining faithful and abiding to His Word. This is not about congregations. Congregations are not different branches of the vine, and it's okay for them to have different teachings. That is nowhere taught here in John chapter 15. He is talking about individuals. Guys, again, if we went to John 15 and everybody understood this and did it, would we have multiple religious groups today? We would not because we would all be faithful Christians trying to abide in the vine. Right? We would want to be faithful branches, and he says to abide in the Word. And so very clearly, what are we learning from the Scriptures? Well, true unity is found and maintained by abiding in His Word. Now, is that what we've seen from the beginning of the first century on? No. And guys, this isn't meant to be a, a condemnation-type sermon. This is a historical-slash-biblical lesson just explaining to you what, what the church is and what's expected of Christians. His Word says the same thing to everybody, so shouldn't we all be believing and doing the same things? John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, Thy word is truth. I don't need a Southern Baptist manual. I don't need a Catholic catechism. I don't, I don't need any of that stuff, right? If everybody understood this and the buck stopped here, all these different divisional groups that we have would be looked at as divisive, and they would be called out as error. Now, if I know Facebook would flag me if I said that, right? You get flagged on Facebook if you, if you say the truth, but that's the truth. So let's talk just for a second about the singularity of the church. I already touched on it, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. But let's go on over to Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body. Do you guys see unity there? You should. We've already talked about unity. And one spirit. That is uh, revelation there. We only have one Holy Spirit who gave us the inspired word. He goes on, Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Do the different groups today have one hope? No. We'll talk about that. One Lord, one faith. Well, if there's one body, doesn't it make sense that there's one faith? That's what the Bible says, right? There's just Jesus' church. There's the one body. It's Christ's church, and then there's the one faith. They make up that one body. One baptism. Let me, let me ask this today in today's religious world. Is sprinkling baptism? Is, is pouring baptism? Is immersion baptism? Or, or do you even need to be baptized? Well, he says there's one baptism, and in all the conversion accounts, it's water. Uh, the word there every time is, is hood, or it means water. He says, one God and Father of all. There are groups that teach there's more than one God. Let's keep going. Who is above all and through all and in you all. There is singularity of the church. There's just the one body. There's just the one faith of those that make up the body. The body is the church, and the body consists of one faith. Let's go back a couple chapters to Ephesians chapter 1, starting verse 22. Notice this. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's why it's called 
Christ's church or the churches of Christ or the church of God or the church of the firstborn. It's his body, right? He's the one who's the head over it, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ is the head of the church. He is the one in a position of authority. Listen to Colossians 1.18 again. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn of, from the dead. You may be saying, well, what is that? Was he the first one to die? No, but he was the first one to ever be resurrected again from the dead and to never die again. Now, we'll be resurrected from the dead and we'll not die, but who was the first? Christ. The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Again, one body, one church, there's the one kingdom, he is the head. Now, here's what I have to say before I move on. Any church that is not in alignment with the head or the one who has the preeminence or the one in authority is a fraud or a deception. They may not know it. I didn't know it, but that's the case. Now, do you guys want to know the biblical criteria for all Christians? For anybody watching this online, I don't care what kind of church you go to, let's just look at the Bible. What does the Bible say is the mandate for all Christians? Notice this. All Christians... All of them are in the same body. Listen to Ephesians 3, 6. <laughs> and you got to remember, at this time, you had Judaizers, you had, you had the Gentiles who were getting merged in with the Jews, and there was a lot of messed up things being taught. And here's what Paul teaches. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. It didn't matter whether you were a Jew who became a Christian, or it didn't matter if you were a Gentile or pagan worshiper who became a Christian. All Christians, and Jew and Gentile, covered everybody in the first century. You were all added to the same body. So when you become a Christian, you're added to the body, the church. Write down Acts verse two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 47. Christ adds you to the church. That's why you're all in the same body. And so all people who are in the church are in the one body. We've already noticed... They all believe the same thing and do the same things. This is causing a lot of trouble for people in the religious world. But that's what the Bible teaches. They all walk by the same rules, and they all believe the same things. Philippians 3.16, Paul writes, By inspiration, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. This rejects all division that we have within the religious world today. And it doesn't matter whether you call yourself a Baptist or a Church of Christ or whatever. If you teach something and it's not found within our scriptures and you are not following the same rules and minding and believing the same things, you fall into that category of those who are not faithful. That's the easiest way to put it. All Christians have the same spirit of faith. I've seen this passage misused quite a few times. Uh, we'll stop that as we, as we read it. 2 Corinthians 4.13, we having the same spirit of faith, you'll have people say, I, I, have the same, I have a spirit of faith, but it's different than yours. Right? I believe Pentecostal. Um, I mean, I have a spirit of faith, but it's, it's based on Pentecostalism. I have a spirit of faith, but mine's based more on the Baptist. I actually worked for a guy who called himself a Bapticostal. I was like, what are you? Because he, he was a preacher. He said, ah. I'm what you would call Bapticostal. I don't really believe in all the Baptists teach, but I don't really believe in all the Pentecostals teach. But, you know, I mean, I have a faith. Let's keep reading the passage. We having the same spirit of faith. What kind of faith? According as it is written. How many of you guys see a bunch of air or wiggle room in there for believing whatever you want? No. I believed, this is Paul, 
And therefore have, have I spoken. Notice this. We, who else is speaking by inspiration? The, apostles, the other apostles. We also believe and therefore speak. The apostles were all inspired through the same Holy Spirit. So they were all preaching doctrine that was in alignment with one another. They were all preaching for the same church, whether you called it the church of Christ or the church of God or whether you called it the church of the firstborn. They all preached for the same church. And all the people who became Christians because of what they taught were added to the same body. Okay? Notice this. All members of the church are of the same family. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. You ever wondered why the church is called the house of God? Let's keep going. Which is the church of the living God. That word church is the word ecclesia. It means the called out ones. It's not a building. People always say, did you go to church this weekend? The word church is ecclesia. It means the called out ones, the separated ones, the set apart ones. We are the church, the set apart ones, right? We are the set apart ones of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We are all, as we are set apart, part of the family of God, and we make up the house of God as the called out or separated ones. But all members of God's family as we've already shown, are in the same body, the church, which is the house of God. We all have the same standard, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, this is Paul telling Timothy, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. If this was done, every one of our pulpits would be teaching the same thing, right? Faithful men would be proclaiming the word of God whether it comes across as easy to hear or whether it doesn't. They, they would be, just like I am, just reading the verses to you. This is what the Bible says. Notice this. As we all have the same standard, we would all abide in the same doctrine. 2 John 1, 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. You ever heard someone say, Christianity doesn't really have a doctrine? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. We have the perfect law of liberty. There's the word law. We have the law of Christ. Here we learn that the church does have doctrine, and it's not found in a catechism or a Southern Baptist manual or my book of confessions down in my office or any of these other things. It's simply found in our New Testament. And all Christians, all, according to the Bible, adhere to the same doctrine. And we all, say, we all serve the same Savior. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Notice this. And he is the Savior of the body. He's not the Savior of the bodies, the multiple bodies. You know, well, I'm a Pentecostal. I'm a Baptist. I'm a... He's not the Savior of multiple bodies. There's one body. He says he has one body. There's one faith of that body. And if everybody understood this, they would do what eventually I... I figured out when I began to look for the body, and it took quite a while to find it. It took a long time, right? It takes, it takes work. It takes research. So as we move on, let's talk for just a second about Christ's blood and how it was shed for the church, the church. I'm going to go over to Acts 20, verse 28, and hopefully I've laid this out in a way that it's easy to understand. Acts 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over, over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers, he's talking to the elders here, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. 
Christ was God in the flesh, and therefore you could refer to the church as it does here by inspiration as the church of God. Christ was God in the flesh, and this is His church. Now, if there's any contention to that, we could move on over to Romans 16, 16, where it simply says this, and then I'll correct it in the Greek. Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. If you guys could go back and look that up in the Greek, and you can, that doesn't say churches of Christ. What it actually, it shows that it's possessive, and what it actually says to render correctly, really in the Greek, it would say Christ's churches salute you. It's not a, denom it's not a denominational title. It's not a denominational name. It is simply showing description or ownership, just like the church of God, the church of Christ, the church of the firstborn. Matter of fact, let me go on over to Hebrews 12.23. Hebrews 12.23. To the general assembly and the church, or the called out ones, of the firstborn, we already talked about him being the firstborn among the dead, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Christ is called the firstborn in Romans 8.29, in Colossians 1.15, in Colossians 1.18, and there was a few different descriptive names given for the church. We don't call ourselves the church of God because that term is used by a specific group of people, and they teach things that we 100% disagree with and that are not supported in the Scriptures. But they've, that's the name they use. So we use a different name. Could we call ourselves the church of God scripturally? Yes, we could. People, oh, don't say that from the pulpit, Sean. Could we do it? Yes. We could call ourselves the church, of, uh, the church of God. We could call ourselves the churches of Christ, the church of Christ or Christ church. We could call ourselves the church of the firstborn that meets over on 12th Street. There's a few different names we could use, okay? And all of them would be scriptural. But I want you to realize none of those are denominational names. The church of God has a governing body. The denominational church of God today has a governing body. Right? They have men that make decisions, and the churches of Christ have no governing body. We are all autonomous. Uh, we are expected for us as individuals to make sure that what's being preached from the pulpit is sound and in alignment with the Bible. If it's not, the men of the congregation will stop me at the door and say, Sean, you don't preach here no more. Go, go preach somewhere else. Sorry, my kid, I can already hear my kids correcting me. You don't preach here anymore. Okay? What's my point? There are a lot of different religious groups out there. Some are even using, using correct biblical names, but they're not teaching things in the Bible. Throughout time, throughout history, we find that the majority of those claim to be Christians, and many of them called themselves the churches of Christ. And I'll address that here in a second. But my point is simply this, is that there is only one body, according to Scripture, that Jesus said was going to be purchased with His blood, or it's declared by inspiration, and since it was purchased with His blood, it belongs to Him. Now, all the other churches that men started, they're not Christ's church. They, are, they belong to the people that started them. They're the ones that are the head of those churches. You may say, how did all this get started? Listen to Matthew 15, 9. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's why we have all these different creed books and things out there. I have many of them down in my office. Uh, these groups were started by men. Those men are the heads of of those groups. Now, as we look here at, at, at all of these scriptures talking about the church, uh, we have to ask ourselves, let's go back to uh, Colossians 1.18. Is all of this okay? Well, again, Colossians 1.18 says, And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. How many heads are there? 
Just one. If you guys saw a guy walking down the street with two heads, would that seem abnormal? It would. There's just one head. And what does the head do? The head turns the body. Back when I used to, back when I was wilder, when I used to skydive, do you guys know that as you're falling through the air, if you just look, your body will turn whichever way your head goes? If you turn, look left, your body goes left. If you look right, body goes right. The head turns the body, right? My head is what governs the body. How many bodies are there? Well, there's only one head, but there's just one body. Imagine Christ's head with 18 different bodies coming off. Would that seem unusual to you? Well, the Bible says, no, that's not right. There's one head and there's one body. And we understand that. There wasn't a single denominational church found in our New Testament that was blood-bought with the blood of Christ. There's no community churches in the first century that were blood-bought from the blood of Christ. None of that stuff existed. And so again, you may be asking yourselves, how in the world did all this start? I'm going to give you a real quick synopsis. I'm doing pretty good on time. How did we get Luther Lutheranism or Protestantism? Well, if you go back, it's attributed to Martin Luther in 1517 in Germany. Jesus didn't start a church in Germany in 1517. You might say, well, what about the Swiss Reformed Church? Well, that was by Zwingli. That was in 1523 in Switzerland. Jesus didn't start a church in Switzerland in 1523, but Zwingli did. What about the Mennonites, Menno Simons? You'll find that was actually started in 1525 in Switzerland. Guys, Jesus didn't start a church in Switzerland in 1525. How about the Anglican community? Well, that was King Henry VIII. He wanted to divorce his wife, but the church, Catholic Church wouldn't let him. So what'd he do? I'll just start my own branch. That occurred over in 1534 in England. Jesus didn't start a church in England in 1534. Calvinism. John Calvin, 1536, Switzerland. Again, Jesus didn't start that church. How about Presbyterianism? That's attributed to John Knox over in 1560 in Scotland. Jesus didn't start a church over in Scotland in 1560. How about the Baptist churches? Well, it's interesting. If you go back and look it up, most people will say, well, it was started by John Smith. If you actually go back and look, and what I have seen in the actual church records, seems the earliest time I find these Baptist churches using that name, and we'll talk about it being a derogatory name in a second, was actually a split off from the churches of Christ. They were all being called Baptists at the time, because guess what they did? They baptized in water, so people called them a bunch of Baptists, right? And in the church records, they talked about they had a split or a division because some were believing that they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and many of them were starting to believe Calvinism or uh, inherited sin and all that. And so what happened? There was a split off. And the one, they continued to use the name Baptists, and the others continued to call themselves the Churches of Christ. But neither here nor there, John Smith was a promoter of it and highly involved in it. But there was no, there was no church started by Jesus in 1605 in Holland. What about the Dutch Reformed Church? That was started by Michaelis Jones in 1628 in the Netherlands. Jesus didn't start a church in the Netherlands in 1628. The Amish, Jacob Amon in 1693, that was over in Switzerland. Uh, you have Methodism by John Wesley in 1739. The Quakers by George Fox in 1647 in England. The Moravians, you guys ever, not, not if you've heard of the Moravians. I got a buddy that, I used to have a buddy who was a Moravian. Uh, that was started by Count Zinderdorf in 1727 in Germany. Congregationalism. You have that being started by John and Charles Wesley in 1744 in England. You had the Church of the Brethren by John Darby, 1828, over in England. Jesus didn't start a church in 1828 in England. You had the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Very interesting. I wish I could spend time on this. Uh, you have Joseph Smith, 
I've got a book down in my office. I think maybe there's two or three that exist in the United States, and I'm being serious. It's about this thick, photocopies and transcripts of everything, including when Joseph Smith was arrested. That guy was a con man. And Joseph Smith is not the starter of, and they will, most, they don't even, Mormons don't even know their own faith. They say, well, well Joseph Smith was the one who, Joseph Smith was a con man. But if you look up the name Sidney Rigdon, you'll find out he was a preacher for the Churches of Christ. And if you take the Book of Mormon, which has been altered over the years, and you line that up next to the Bible, there's an awful lot in there. And guess what? That was, in my 100%, my personal belief, Sidney Rigdon, who, was, who became very high up in the Mormon church, who left the Churches of Christ because he couldn't become, he wanted to be number one, and he couldn't compete with some other preachers of the day. So he went off into Mormonism and became their top guy. That is the guy that wrote the Book of Mormon. Uh, and if anybody ever wants to look at that book, you got a couple hours. Interesting. Joseph Smith was a con man. Jesus never started some church over in New York. How about the Seventh-day Adventists? Ellen White, 1860 in New Hampshire. Jesus didn't start church in New Hampshire back in the 1860s. Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Russell, 1870 in Pennsylvania. Christian scientists, you may say they don't exist anymore. I know a lady whose husband's a Christian scientist here in this area. That was started in 1879 by Mary Baker Eddy. I have one of her books down in my office. It's 100 and some years old. Very interesting. You guys can look at any of my books if you want them. Pentecostalism started by Charles Parham in 1900. We've talked about the Azusa Street Revival before and when Pentecostalism came in, when people all of a sudden, there was no speaking in tongues for, what, almost 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden you got people saying, oh, I can speak in tongues now. That all started really in the Azusa Revival and Charles Parham. So... Why do I bring all that up and why do I give you that whole list? And there's even more. I can't do 45,000 in a sermon, but these are the major ones. God's Word never approves of any of this, and you don't see where any of these churches were ever existent in the first century. If you could be a faithful Christian in the first century without any of this, ask yourself, do you need any of it? No. No. They were Christians and they didn't have any of this. So you, you don't need it. What about the Churches of Christ? Some people will say, now wait a minute, Sean, you didn't put the Churches of Christ in there, and that was started by Alexander Campbell, we all know it. I read that through a couple of forums this week. Let me say this, I don't, I don't agree with everything Alexander Campbell taught. And no, Alexander didn't create or start the Churches of Christ, but if you study Alexander Campbell, what you'll find is, is he came out of denominationalism, he was looking for somewhere to preach or for the church, and guess what he found? And it existed before he was ever here in America. The Churches of Christ. And he began to preach for the churches of Christ. But Alexander Campbell did not start the churches of Christ. Remember, people look at it like it's a denominational. It's not. The Christ's church, it's just a description. You could call it by different things. He found it and what he found and where he began to actually preach. And this guy was a scholar, by the way. I agree with the majority of what he teaches, but there are some things I disagree with. Uh, he didn't start it. Matter of fact, if you go back and you begin to look from 1,000 on, what you're going to find is, is there were a network of churches of Christ. You can actually see their historical records from the churches where they call themselves Christians, and they called the body the churches of Christ. And you find it in London, you find it in France, you find it in Germany. I have a book right here. It used to be 50 bucks. I think it's down to about 30 this covers the churches of Christ by name in London, in France. It covers all the derogatory terms. It, if you guys want to know the churches of Christ that existed way before Alexander Campbell, this book will be up here. If anybody wants it, shake their head and you can take it home tonight, today. I'm going to leave it here if somebody wants to read it. I had a second one that I was going to pull out of my office called 
uh, the eternal kingdom that I had to outline. We called it the eternal outline. The book actually does a very good job. This is actually a little bit better as far as following the church. The other book actually follows the church, but really covers the apostasy of the Catholic Church. It wasn't in my office, which means it's at home on my desk. I'm going to bring it Wednesday, and I'll put it up here. Uh, this has been colored on by some children, not mine, but it's still all there. Anybody wants to take it, take it and bring it back, uh, and it covers all of the church. They existed in Germany. They existed in France. They existed in London. And their most outspoken ministers, many of them were burned at the stake by the Catholic Church. But not only that, you had the Protestants also who were rounding these people up and were killing them. And so as they spread all over, we find them being called a number of derogatory terms. One of those was Baptists. Why? Well, they baptized people. They immersed them. So you're, gonna call, you're looking for a name to call them something derogatory? You call them a Baptist. Some were called Dunkards at the time. Why? They dunked people, right? That's how they immersed people. Here's what's really interesting, and most people don't know this. Some of them were actually called Anabaptists. Now, when you think of the Anabaptists, you think of the Amish and you think of the Mennonites. The word Anabaptist comes from the word Anna, meaning re, and Baptist, or to baptize. Re-baptizing. These are people who were getting immersed in water for the believer's baptism as an adult, and so they were being re-baptized from their either original Catholic immersion or sprinkling or whatever they got, or their Protestant uh, sprinkling or whatever they got as an infant, and they were being baptized as adults. Many of the churches of Christ were called Anabaptists derogatorily with a number of the other groups. Okay, So they have to be thrown in there. And there were a whole bunch of other names that were actually used to describe these, these people. But every denominational group that we just covered, that's a byproduct of man's teachings. You don't find any of that stuff in the Bible. You don't find it approved, and, and you don't find it. And guys, I am not, I know people say, it's not, well, I'm a church of Christ, or I am not a church of Christ. Or that's using the word in a denominational sense. I am a, I am a member of the body of the church of Christ, or I belong to Christ's church, or I belong to the church of God, or I belong to the church of the, of the firstborn. I could use all of those terms. And when I say that, they're not denominational titles. We are pre-denominational. We don't even call ourselves non-denominational. Before all of this stuff ever started, that's what we go by. Pre-denominational, right? That's what we find in the Bible. Now let's talk about this, and I'll end with this. Guys, division has constantly been condemned. And you go over to the book of uh, Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Division has always been condemned. And this church had a number of problems. But as we look at what Paul writes here to this church, ask yourself, was Paul okay with there being division in the body? 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe. He even told them, hey, this is who told me about it. That there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? 
Guys, the Scriptures clearly condemn people separating themselves off into being different followers of different people. It also condemns, condemns them calling themselves by all of these different names. It condemns different doctrines. And I want you again, go back and notice the rhetorical questions asked by Paul. Is Christ divided? Well, the answer is no. Christ isn't divided and neither should His body. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Jesus was crucified for us. Then he says, uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Right? you got people who were, they were preacher followers. And here's the thing, the preachers were all teaching the same thing. They don't need to be a follower of the preacher. They needed to be a follower of the doctrine being taught by the preacher. I have certain preachers that I listen to, but it's not because I'm a follower of that preacher. It's because he, as far as I know, he preaches the doctrine correctly, right? That one passage right there is sufficient to deny every bit of the religious confusion that we have today. And that's also within the churches of Christ. Now, I wasn't going to do this next week, but I got an email. Some of you know him here, some of you don't. I got an email and he said... Uh, would you speak on, and he gave me the title, and I was like, and I wrote back and said, yep, I will. And then he said, by the way, while you're doing that one, can you do this one too? We've just talked about the unity and the purity within the churches of Christ. And what he wants me to speak about is the fact that there is division within the churches of Christ. My understanding from what I received from him was that there were other religious bodies around him asking their body to change what they believe and do to be in alignment with them. And he asked for my opinion on it, and I, I gave it to him, and I said, yep, I'll speak on that. So next week, today we've primarily just covered religious division in general, but next week's going to be a little more specific, and a few of them are going to be some unusual topics. Maybe you're not very familiar with them. Uh, I've never ha actually known anyone that knew a member of this I, ne I never knew anyone who went to a congregation that actually believed this firsthand. I've read about it a number of times studied on it, um, but he actually worships very close to them. So we're going to talk about it. As we begin to draw this to a close, and clearly here was the question. Here was the question, the church. Is today's church the same as the church in the first century? Here's your answer. For the majority of churches, the answer is no. But for some churches, the answer is yes. And that is why every one of us has to be diligent. Be diligent. Don't trust the person behind the pulpit. Don't trust the person in your Bible class. Look every single thing up. Be like a Berean and go back and make sure that what they're teaching matches the Scriptures. As I draw this to a close, I hope you got a good understanding of the, some of the history of the church, some of about how the apostasy came, and then what's expected of believers. My hope would be that is if you're watching this or you're here, if you've not become a Christian, that you would. It's not complicated. Again, go back, look at the book of Acts, look at the, the accounts of the conversions. Each of the conversions, if you lay them out, you can actually find online in a lot of places where they've actually laid them out. You can see what was done in the conversion accounts. And here's what I submit to you. If you just do what we find in the conversion accounts, you can be assured that you have obeyed the gospel correctly and be added to the church. People heard the word. They believed he was the Messiah. They repented of their sins. They confessed Christ, and then they were immersed in water for their remission of sins. That is what we find in the conversion accounts. That's how easy it is to become a Christian. When you do that, the Lord adds you to his church, Acts 2, verse 47, which is the body, which is the kingdom. And then our goal within that kingdom is to simply be faithful. As I draw this to a close, if there's a way we can help you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.